This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. By now, we've all likely been exposed to COVID somewhere. At some points during this pandemic, is all the exposure slowly helping our immune systems? Johnson & Johnson reportedly stopped making its COVID vaccine temporarily at a plant in the Netherlands. Now, this comes as developing countries badly need the vaccine. The reason behind the halt in vaccine production might make people angry. The pandemic could be leading to more broken hearts. Literally, researchers noticing a rise in broken hearts syndrome. We start with all of the times you've likely been exposed to the coronavirus. Dr. Nicole Baumgart is a professor of immunology at the Center for Immunology and Infectious Diseases at UC Davis. So, doctor, could exposures to the virus help build up our immune system in the long run? Yeah, so it's obviously difficult to know whether when you're exposed to the virus, uh, whether you actually, and you don't have any symptoms, whether you got infected to a low level or whether you didn't get infected. But overall, um, a small measure of exposure to the virus that doesn't make us sick might, could, uh, under certain circumstances, help our immune system to remind the immune system to make more antibodies. Um, now, I wouldn't recommend to use that as an excuse to go out there without mask and exposing ourselves because we don't know what the level of the immune response is that we actually have. Um, but this constant reminder uh, having uh, the virus around can actually be good for the immune system to get little boosts. Well, I mean, I mean, is it uh, logical to presume that the uh, virus has been so pervasive, you know, depending on what variant, but certainly the Omicron variant, so pervasive that, you know, unless you've been living hermetically sealed in your house, that you've probably, most people have been exposed to it over and over mm -hmm. again, right? Yeah, that's, again, that's sort of a little bit hard to know, but I would agree that um, many of us have been exposed and not everybody who has been exposed gets sick, right? This is why there are some recommendations that you shouldn't be unmasked indoors with, close to somebody for 15 minutes, right? This 15 minutes, um, it's because there is this idea that just having a, a little bit of virus in the atmosphere might not be enough to effectively infect us, but that is really more to do with uh, the ability of the virus to get in every single time it sees a human being. Right? So, um, and of course, it can also have to do with the fact that we now have, many of us have pre-existing immunity either because we have been affected before or we have gotten some vaccine. Yeah, so if we take that uh, as kind of the baseline, vaccinated and, and even better boosted, or maybe mm -hmm. you got this and then you recovered, that kind of leads us back to what you were saying before, that maybe when you see this out in the world, it's kind of like it keeps you primed, right? Because especially like if you're in a high-risk job or something or people are coming by all the time, well, a little bit here and there, you're going to remember and it's going to maybe keep you tuned up. Yes, if the virus can see the cells of the immune system, right, which are not sitting on top of our um, airways, but they're sitting inside. But we have cells that can actually grab into the airways and can grab antigen as well. So under the right circumstances, uh, that can definitely provide a boost. And it is probably the basis on which uh, some um, in, in the earlier days, when we had a lot of measles outbreak, for example, um, we had a highly effective vaccine, right? And 
Um, and it is now understood that some of the exposure, uh, repeated exposure of the children to measles, which at the time was very prevalent, probably helped the immune system uh, in addition to the vaccine, where the vaccine stopped you from making you clinically sick, uh, but then having this exposure um, helped you for the immune system to uh, remind itself to keep making these antibodies because the immune system is not very good at remembering things that it saw a very long time ago for most antigens, not all of them, um, because we want to have the immune system primed against what's currently in our environment uh, so that we have the right kind of immunity. What about people who, you know, you were talking about short exposure repeatedly to the virus, but then you have these mysterious cases, maybe not so mysterious, of, you know, families where one person comes down with uh, COVID mm. and they're, you know, sick as a dog, and yeah. everybody else in the household is fine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that there are some things we don't understand. Is it that this person had some previous exposure, maybe um, had infection, but didn't get sick, clinically sick. So getting infected and getting sick are two quite different things. Um, often um, uh, that goes hand in hand, you get infected, then you get sick, then you recover. Uh, but sometimes an infection, if your immune system is very well primed, you might be able to get away and you may just feel down for a day or so and you wouldn't even know that you had a low level infection uh, if, you, if you have a really strong immune response. Uh, so doing, you know, knowing that difference in a non-experimental setting, a setting is, is really difficult. Dr. Nicole Baumgartz, professor of immunology up there at UC Davis. You know how she said that the immune system is not very good at remembering just, things in I the past? exactly what you thought probably yeah, was. Yeah, because yes. I don't... I, I don't either. I don't remember things in the past either. You need a little prime every now and then. Johnson & Johnson reportedly stopped making its COVID vaccine late last year when it shut down the only plant making usable batches of the vaccine. The New York Times says the company did that so the facility could focus on making an experimental but potentially much more profitable vaccine for totally different virus. Shutdown's only temporary, but it comes as J&J's fallen behind on deliveries to developing countries that badly need vaccines. Dr. Bruce Y. Lee, Executive Director of Public Health Informatics, Computational and Operations Research. So J&J uh, fell out of favor here in the U.S., but is it still the foremost vaccine available, you know, other places around the world? Yeah, it's still very valuable because the fact that it's it can deliver protection in just one dose and, and requires just two doses for a booster. And also it doesn't have the same storage requirements that the uh, Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine have. So it's a lot easier to transport and store and administer. So what? We hope that J&J says they have enough in storage to get them through this uh, period where they're not making it and then they can make more. Or have they even said anything about that? Because we're still kind of in this race to look, we've got our own problems here with vaccination levels. But you really want to get a whole bunch of the world population vaccinated in the next you know, spring and summer months um, so we can hopefully stave off more variants. Yeah, absolutely. We have to remember that this is a global thing. This is a worldwide thing. So it's not enough for us to just control the virus. Uh, we, you know, all the countries around the world need to be able to control this. Otherwise, we might have a ping pong effect where the where the uh, virus just keeps spreading back and forth between different countries. So it's really important to keep everyone protected. I'm curious because uh, if you'd look at, say, two companies, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, one would have thought if any of the two, if either of the two were going to have an issue, 
pumping out large numbers of COVID vaccines. It might have been Moderna because I think their vaccine is the first time they've actually had a, a commercial product uh, on the market. And Johnson & Johnson, of course, is a company with a very rich history. Why is Johnson & Johnson repeatedly failing so badly on this? Yeah, this has been surprising. And, and, and one of the concerns is that when you hear news like this, you don't hear news of what's going to be set up alternatively. Like what, what, what are the plans? Uh, you don't want to hear a situation where production is being shut down in one place, but then you know, what's going to happen with production elsewhere? Uh, so this is, this is a significant issue and, and we really need to get to the bottom of what's going to happen. Do you think that maybe they just think that you know, some of the other shots that have been developed are going to take over for this. But it doesn't make a lot of sense from, you know, at least this perspective looking in, because, again, this is the one that they can make a lot of if they choose to. And it's easy to get places. Yeah, it's clear that there is a shortage of vaccines around the world. If you look at a lot of places, a lot of countries around the world, they don't have the access to vaccines that we do. Um, so they would be happy to have more vaccines. We're really dealing with a shortage. So any amount of production, especially a vaccine that is so conveniently stored and administered um, is needed. So yeah, there's no really no reason to, to not continue production. The, um, the shortage of, of the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, uh, because the messenger RNA ones require that, that deep freeze, right, in order to transport mm -hmm. and to, to store, I would imagine then it's unrealistic. That sort of is, is a, a sort of a sequel to Mike's question. Uh, there's no way that they could sort of increase dramatically, I suppose, their uh, output. And then because of the freezing issues, would it be unrealistic for them to try to fill in the gaps left by Johnson & Johnson? Well, there's certainly need for vaccines, period. So the, uh, as much as any manufacturers can really increase their production, that will be helpful for the world. But but you're absolutely correct that there's there are limitations. So places that just don't have the deep freezing capabilities uh, won't be able to support the mRNA vaccines and therefore could benefit uh, from the J&J &J vaccines. And so there are many places around the world that don't have the uh, freezer capacity. They don't even have standard freezers in many cases. So um, the mRNA vaccines can fill the gap to some degree, but we still need the J&J &J vaccines. Dr. Bruce Y. Lee, Executive Director, Public Health Informatics, Computational Operations Research Professor at the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. Coming right up, the COVID pandemic causing a surge in broken hearts, and we mean broken hearts. Yes, Valentine's Day is fast approaching, but don't get the wrong idea about this next segment. Everyone has heard the expression broken heart. It's used figuratively when things like a breakup happen, but it can also have a kind of literal and scary meaning. Broken heart syndrome, a real stress-induced heart condition. Researchers at Cedars-Sinai and elsewhere have noticed a sharp increase in these cases since the pandemic began. They're impacting women much more than men. Dr. Noel Barry Mers is director of the Barbara Streisand Heart Center at Cedars-Sinai. So this is a condition that has traditionally affected women more than men, and up until recently, uh, the syndrome hasn't been widely publicized within the health community? That's all correct, and part of the reason we're talking about it now, in addition to the pandemic, is that we're finally studying women 
the NIH um, tells us that we have to include women if we're going to uh, study something that equally impacts women and men, which is heart disease. So um, we're learning a lot more about it. More is being reported partly because it's being recognized. It is considered a stress-related trigger. It is uh, over 90% women. Uh, the majority are emotional stress, um, illness, death of a loved one, um, a frightening, you know, horrible event happening. But in men, which it's not, you know, it's not, it is reported in men, more often physical stressors, maybe competing in a triathlon, um, having a very serious infection, um, being in intensive care. So we're learning a lot about it, and um, hopefully the pandemic will not continue to provide us with <laughs> lots of uh, patients to study. Um, it's, it's related to uh, surges of adrenaline, and some people react in this adverse way, and many people don't. Uh, it's not super common, so people don't need to be too afraid or alarmed. Um, and the reason we're studying it now is, of course, to identify uh, ways of predicting risk and, most importantly, how best to treat it. I mean, is there an analogous situation before the pandemic when we saw this happening? Yes. In fact, um, this recent publication we tracked um, using a big national database um, through, up through uh, before the pandemic. So the rise in reportable cases really uh, pre-pandemic simply had to do with increased recognition. It really wasn't described until about 15 years ago. So um, physicians don't report things that they don't, they don't know what it is, right? It's a one-off. Yeah. And the name kind of works, right? Because, you know, yeah. you, you're, you're, you can have a broken heart and it's an emotional stressor. And then literally, like, it is not pumping the right way. It is it is broken in some fashion. I mean, what happens that we know about that, that leads people to, to, what, go to ERs thinking they're having a heart attack? It feels like a heart attack. Um, it's a severe cases. It's They're in shock. Um, the, you know, paramedics bring them in. They look very bad. Um, but it turns out the majority of the time, the arteries uh, providing the blood supply to the heart muscle are open. So it's not a real heart attack. The heart muscle is stunned uh, in a, in, and dysfunctional, as you say, in a very stereotypical way. So if we do that echocardiogram or we shoot a ventriculogram when we're doing the, the cath, uh, we see this, uh, and it's why it's called Takatsubo, which is the Japanese term for octopus pot, and that's what it looks like, uh, so that's how it got its name. And the treatment? So the treatment initially is supportive, of course. Um, the majority of folks that survive will recover often within days to weeks of that pumping function, the reason to study it, number one, is it has anywhere from a 10 to 20% recurrence rate. So we would like to prevent that um, because each one of these episodes can be life-threatening. Um, and then number two, uh, up to half, uh, particularly the women, uh, will have what we call long-term uh, effects and they will uh, report fatigue, they have shortness of breath, they have uh, effort intolerance, you know, they just can't climb the stairs or they have to rest all the time. Uh, even though the heart pumping function uh, visibly appears normal um, in our cardiac MRI and our sophisticated imaging at Cedar sinai 
uh, we're detecting that actually that heart muscle is not normal. Um, and so we're going to need to figure that out and, again, uh, come up with innovative treatment uh, for that problem. Is this also some sort of lesson on, you know, heart-brain connections? Very much so. And, um, uh, you know, we as cardiologists, we think that the heart is the most important single organ in your body, but it's actually the brain and the brain controls everything. And these uh, what we call adrenergic or, um, you know, catecholamine storms, adrenaline is probably the best lay term. These storms in relation to either the emotional or the physical stress um, are stunning the heart muscle and, and causing that in some people and not others. And then even though it looks like they bounce back, we need to understand that residual damage. And our current imaging techniques you get in, you know, the doctor's office, just don't pick that up. So uh, we hope um, with these future studies to be able to identify the nature of the damage um, and, uh, you know, start to talk about things that can improve it. I mean, even things like stem cells. Yeah. On a more simplistic level, lots of people, of course, nowadays, they have all these apps to keep track of what their heart is doing. Would that be helpful? Potentially. One of the grants that we have under review right now uh, at our National Institutes of Health is to do remote monitoring and then using artificial intelligence to understand patterns um, with those remote monitors. And we call it research, right, because we don't really know if it works. Um, but that would be sort of the concept is uh, with better what we call also precision medicine, right? Just what is going on with that patient at that time? Uh, will we gain a better understanding of what the problem is and therefore what would be some effective treatments? Dr. Noel Barry Mers, director of the Barbara Streisand Heart Center at Cedars-Sinai. Doctor, thanks. We end today's Coronavirus Daily with a check-in on the Winter Olympics in Beijing, where athletes are stressing about a lot more than just their events and medal standings. China has implemented such tough COVID restrictions on these games that some athletes who may have been exposed to coronavirus but are testing negative have been forced to isolate for days. And that means time away from their teammates and trainers, and they're preparing to perform on the biggest athlete stage in the world. U.S. figure skater Vincent Joe, who had hopes of meddling in the Olympics, tested positive for COVID, forced out of the individual skating competition entirely. At the uh, women's hockey match between Russia and Canada, players were wearing N95s under the helmets and cages after a COVID scare. But the games go on. You can find this Odyssey original and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 